Let's pray together. Oh, great shepherd, there is nothing more we need from you today other than what you have given. We have the forgiveness of sins, life everlasting, adoption as sons and daughters, and seats at your table. Yet because you are so generous, we ask now that you would lead us beside the still waters of your word, restore our souls, guide us in the path of righteousness, all for your name's sake. Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word this morning, you can be turning to Matthew chapter 23. So we continue in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 23. This is a continuation of the conversation that Jesus began in, in chapter 22 when they were testing him. And you remember last week we looked at how he is now uh, turned around and is now questioning the Pharisees instead of receiving their questions. So he's speaking to a general audience here. Everybody in, in public in the temple is able to hear this. And this is Jesus' final public address before his crucifixion. This is the, his last opportunity to speak directly to the people before he goes to the cross. This would have been uh, probably about Tuesday of Holy Week. Um, so when we, when we get the context in our mind, we're, we're only looking at just a couple days uh, away from the cross here. If you found your copy of uh, God's Word there in Matthew 23. If you'll stand with me, we're going to read verses 1 through 12 together this morning. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven." Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. You may be seated. The title of the message this morning is Three Snares and a Solution for Stumbling Shepherds. Three Snares and a Solution for Stumbling Shepherds. The pastors of Barberville Baptist Church are sinners. Uh, I am one of them. Uh, in fact, all pastors are sinners. Uh, all shepherds of God's people are sinners uh, because they are all men. There's only one shepherd who is not a sinner, and that is Christ. And so as we, as we look at this text, we, we can sometimes misunderstand who these Pharisees are. Uh, if In our culture, when you use a word like that person's being a Pharisee, that's normally not a compliment for that person. Usually it's that person's legalistic or they're overbearing or they're a hypocrite. That, that's the way that we use that word in our society. But we need to understand that uh, Paul was a Pharisee. 
Paul said that he was very zealous for God, that he had zeal without knowledge, that he really truly believed in the God of the Bible. He believed uh, right doctrine about the Bible. And yet he persecuted Jesus, and he said it was because he had zeal without knowledge, that once he came to know who Jesus actually was, uh, then he did trust in him. But sometimes we misunderstand who these Pharisees are. Some of them, for sure, are hypocrites. Uh, some of us uh, can be hypocrites. But there were Pharisees that loved the Lord. There were Pharisees that truly believed the Bible. There were Pharisees that had correct doctrine. And so what we see in this text are three snares for the leaders of God's people, whether that be Pharisees uh, in this context or whether it be your pastors or pastors generally. There's three snares in this text that I want us to see uh, that are temptations for uh, men who are in leadership of God's people. This is a hard uh, message for me to preach because I feel these temptations myself. I'm not bringing this to you as, as a result of, of my victories in all of these areas. As I said, uh, all of your pastors are sinful men. And for myself, I can find myself uh, from time to time caught in these snares. In fact, as I studied this text this week, the Lord revealed to me that I have been caught in some of these snares, even recently. And so we preach verse by verse through the books, so I don't get to skip the hard parts for me. I have to, I have to preach the things that condemn me uh, as, as they might work for anybody else. So the first snare that I want you to see here is the snare of seeking submission. Look at verses 1 through 3. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, Scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. So there's a snare of seeking submission. What does that mean? That means that a trap that leaders of God's people can fall into is, is trying to seek other people being in submission underneath of them, uh, trying to uh, oppress or, or subjugate the people that they're supposed to be caring for. It's a, it's a trap that they can fall into. And Jesus is accusing the Pharisees of falling into the snare of seeking submission. How do we see this in the text? In verse 2, it tells us that they seized their own seats. Notice he says that they have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. So this chair, uh, the Greek word that they're using there is, is cathedra. Uh, if um, we look at church history, this would have been a, a seat that the, the chair of Moses, that teaching or judgment of the law would have come from. Uh, we have those in the modern church. We call them pulpits. Uh, but the, the word that would be appropriate to use for that is a cathedra. It's a place where God's word or God's judgment is spoken out to his people. And so uh, this desk that I'm standing behind here would be our modern equivalent of the seat of Moses uh, in a synagogue or in, or in the temple at that time. And Jesus is saying that they have seated themselves there. So they seized their own seats. What does that mean? That means that they were not necessarily appointed by God or by the people of God. This is contrary to what people recognized about Jesus. Jesus didn't sit in the seat of Moses. Jesus was out among the people. Jesus was in the courts of the temple. He was in the Gentile nations. He was in the houses of sinners. He was 
in a lot of places, but the seat of Moses was not the place that he spent most of his time. And yet, in, back in chapter 7 of Matthew, it says that the people recognized that he spoke as one that had authority. And you'll remember just a few chapters earlier after he cleansed the temple when they asked him, by what authority do you do these things? And his response was basically the same authority that John had because John the Baptist did not go to seminary. John the Baptist was not ordained by the Jewish leaders or the Sanhedrin. He was not sanctioned by them as, as a ruler of the people of God. And yet both John and Jesus were able to speak with authority on the Scriptures, and the people recognized that God had appointed them to an office and, and, and that they didn't need the Sanhedrin to approve them because they were approved by God. It's not the same with these Pharisees. A lot of times they had to uh, manipulate or do things politically in order to get into these positions, or it could have been a, a family thing uh, where you know they've, they've had a, a generation in leadership uh, for multiple generations. And so the people recognized Jesus' authority there. So one of the commentators pointed this out. He said, the chair, is talking about this seat of Moses, the chair does not make the priest, but the priest the chair. The place does not sanctify the man, but the man the place. Whoever sits well on that throne will receive honor on its account. In other words, why was the seat of Moses called the seat of Moses? Well, it was because it was where Moses sat. So sitting in the seat of Moses doesn't give you the authority of Moses. Saying what Moses said gives you the authority of Moses, which is why in the modern pulpit, uh, standing behind a pulpit and giving your opinions or your life lessons or your seven helps to being a better dad or whatever else it is, does not give you the authority to stand behind a pulpit and claim to be a teacher of God's people. The only way that you can do that is if you stand behind a pulpit and say what God has already said in his word. Uh, you have to preach the Bible because the authority doesn't come from the desk. It comes from the book. And so this is the reason why we must preach the book. The pulpit can look like a lot of different things. I wish ours was enormous compared to this, uh, but that's my personal preference. But the reality is, is if this word is not preached, then this is just a piece of furniture. It has no authority in and of itself. As Baptists, uh, we believe that appointing leaders congregationally is the biblical model for the church. So all, all of your uh, pastors and deacons in this church are elected by the members of the church. And we don't just do that because it's a tradition. We do it because we believe that it's biblical to do that. We believe that the scripture shows that there was a selection process for the leaders of the people of God that included input from the members of the congregation. In other words, why was John considered a prophet? Was it because the, the Sanhedrin said, said it? Was he appointed as a prophet? Or was it because the people recognized that God had put him into an office? We would make the same argument with pastors and deacons. Uh, all of our deacons in this church are not deacons because we made them deacons. God made them deacons, and we just recognized that he did it. Uh, men that preach the word, uh, you can get training in different things to do that, but ultimately the church has to recognize that God has raise someone up with a gift within the church and recognize that God has done that with that person. So your pastors do not seat themselves in the pulpit each week. They're selected by the members using the providential guidance of the Holy Spirit. So I'm not standing before you preaching this morning because I decided that I wanted to get behind this desk and preach. Uh, I had to do this 
uh, almost six years ago now, and the members of this church had to make the decision of whether or not they felt like it was right for me to do that, in the same way with our other pastors here. And so we are not seating ourselves behind this desk. Uh, we have been seated behind this desk uh, by this church under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They also slandered their own statements. Look at, look at verse 3 there again. Therefore, do all they tell you, uh, therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. This is the definition of hypocrisy, is saying one thing and doing something else. So they slandered their own statements because the, the decisions that they're making, their lifestyle was contrary to their doctrine. So notice Jesus isn't saying that they're teaching false doctrine. Remember, the, the Sadducees, remember just recently, he corrected them on the resurrection of the dead and the existence of angels. So he corrected their doctrine. He's not correcting the doctrine of the Pharisees. He's actually correcting their life. He's actually correcting their ethics and their morals, not necessarily their doctrine. So what do we learn from this? We, we learn that the way that we worship God and serve God matters just as much as what we believe about Him. So you can believe a lot of things rightly and live wrongly, and it's still considered sinful by God. In other words, God cares about right doctrine and right action. And so we have to have both. There's a tendency in a lot of churches to go one way or the other. You have some churches that emphasize action. They're in the community. They're active. They're, they're uh, helping the homeless. They're helping the orphan. They're helping the widow. They're helping the homeless. They're doing all of these kind of uh, activities. And Jesus uh, James says that true religion, undefiled religion, is caring for orphans and widows in their distress. So does God want us to care for the orphan and the widow? Absolutely. That's a clear teaching in Scripture. And yet at the same time, if you believe that that saves you or that earns you some kind of good graces with God, then you have a false doctrine motivating a right action. Now, we can tend to be the other way around, where you can have the correct doctrine that motivates no action, which is actually sinful too. And so for, for them, and he unpacks this in the next point there, they'll tell you everything that you need to do in order to be obedient to law, but that doesn't mean that they do any of those things. That's for you people. That's, that's the perspective of the Pharisees. And Jesus is condemning them of having the right doctrine and the wrong action is really the wrong doctrine, is, is the way that that works. Having right doctrine and wrong practice indicates that we are worshiping an idol who is worthy of less than the one true God. So when we don't act on what we know, we're assuming that the God that we're worshiping is okay with that, which means that we're actually worshiping a different God. For instance, I didn't know what Wesley was going to pray for the offering, but it applies to the situation. When we give an offering, we're thanking God that he allows us to keep anything that he gives us. That's a different perspective than saying, well, I'm going to share with God what I have. Instead, it's, God, I thank you that you've given me any, that you've allowed me to keep anything at all because everything that I have does come from you. And so when we understand this God rightly who demands 100% of our time, 100% of our attention, 100% of our resources, 100% of our talents, he allows us to use all those things to care for ourselves and to care for each other but the actions that we choose to take often indicate that we think he doesn't demand those things, when in fact he really does. And he's not only does he demand them, but he's worthy of them. 
he, he has certainly earned all of those things from us in Christ. Matthew Henry said this, What greater hypocrisy can there be than to press that upon others to be believed and done, which they themselves disbelieve and disobey, pulling down in their practice what they build up in their preaching? When in the pulpit, preaching so well that it is pity they should ever come out, but when out of the pulpit, living so ill that it is pity they should ever come in. So it's the snare of seeking submission. The second snare I want you to see is the snare of seeking superiority. Look at verses 4 and 5 there. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. So the second snare that leaders can fall into is seeking superiority. It's a trap uh, for, for men that are serving the Lord and his people to think that they're better than other people. Uh, it's a trap that they can fall into. So how do we, what does it look like for someone to fall into this trap? Well, Jesus says that the Pharisees here, that they saddled their own society. They saddled them with these burdens. They're placing burdens on them. In verse 4 again, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. In other words, they take the, the weighty demands of the law and the, and the requirements of right action and they lay those on the people with no interest in helping them or, or, or bearing those burdens with them. They just lay the burdens on them. Uh, Pharisees were strict because people praised restriction. So why, so why, were, why were they so strict with their doctrine? The reason why is, is because people thought that they should be. So they weren't really strict and legalistic because they really believed that God expected them to obey all of these uh, finer details in the oral tradition. It was really more about their hearts, and Jesus is pointing out here that the reason why you act so strictly in your religion is because you think that people expect you to act strictly in your religion. And, and so there's a temptation there for pastors to act a certain way, to dress a certain way, to behave a certain way, because they believe that the people expect them to do that, not necessarily because the Word of God commands them to do that. And it's a temptation that they can fall into of saddling people with expectations that the Bible doesn't really have. That's what we call legalism. When, when you say that holiness is dependent upon something that the Bible does not say holiness is dependent upon, that's legalism. If I say you have to wear a certain type of clothing or you have to listen to a certain type of music or you have to, uh, your house has to be a certain way or uh, there's a million other things, uh, opinions that I can give of personal opinions or even things that may be convictions that the Lord has given me personally for my own life. If I don't have a chapter and verse behind that that says you have to do that, it's legalism for me to say that you're doing that. And for a lot of these men, while the intent of a lot of these additional laws was to keep the Ten Commandments, to keep the Old Testament law, it ended up going to an extreme where they were so concerned about doing things like tithing on their spices that they forgot what Jesus said were the weightier matters of the law. And sometimes we can get so focused on the minute details of our preferences and, and things that we have that we forget the gospel, we forget grace, we forget the, the weightier things that God has done because we get so focused on the wrong things. John Chrysostom said, First they require great and extreme strictness of life without any indulgence from those over whom they rule. Yet they are much less stringent with themselves. This is opposite from what the truly good pastor ought to hold. 
He ought to be a rigorous and severe judge in things that concern himself, but in the matters of those whom he rules, he ought to be gentle and ready to make allowances. So contrary to the Pharisees, Jesus' teaching actually removed burdens instead of applying them. He actually removed burdens. And so while they are saddling society, Jesus is coming through with this gospel that is saying, uh, yes, you should feel the weight of the law. You should feel the weight of the law crushing you and your inability to keep the law, and you should cry out to God for a Savior to lift the burden of the law from your shoulders. And then you should look to Christ, because He is the one who is strong enough to bear up under the full weight of the law and keep all of the law perfectly. That, that is the gospel. The gospel is that He is your lawkeeper. He has done it for you. That when you were being crushed under the expectation of God and His holiness, that Christ came alongside you and put His shoulders up under that burden and lifted it up with His strength so that your back isn't broken, so that, so that you aren't destroyed and consumed by the requirements of God's holiness. That's something we should be thankful for today. So they saddled their own society, but they, they also showed their own sanctity. Uh, vanity was actually their religion. Their religion was actually vanity. It was, how do I look? How do I appear to others? What do other people think about me? What should I do or not do in order to have approval by men? That was actually their religion. It really wasn't about the worship of God for, for some of these men. It was really about acquiring worship for themselves. So a man's fitness for shepherding God's flock is not based on visible expressions of religion, such as church attendance or preaching ability, but rather from his acts of private devotion, his leadership at home, and his secret prayer and giving. This is one thing that a lot of churches neglect when they're selecting pastors. They forget that the home qualifies a man for ministry. This is something that is a temptation for a lot of pastors, and I can speak for myself on this account. It's a temptation to give more to the church than to your family more of your time, more of yourself, more of your attention. And yet, the more that you imbalance that, the more you actually disqualify yourself to be in the ministry. A mentor of mine told me recently that going on a vacation with my wife wasn't about entertainment. It was actually about keeping myself qualified in order to be a pastor. And we, of course, we see this with many men who fall, who fall into sin, whose marriages are broken, whose children abandon the Lord. We, we have a cultural joke about pastor's kids being you know, the worst uh, wretches in the whole church. And yet at the same time, that in and of itself should probably be grounds for a man to be removed from the pulpit and to be removed from the ministry. And so it shouldn't be a joke. It should be a serious accusation of if you have failed in the home, you have failed the church already. And so our fitness is not based on preaching. There's a lot of men who have disqualified themselves from uh, ministry who are excellent preachers, who are gifted orators. And yet, according to Scripture, they are disqualified and in some cases should never have been allowed to preach to begin with. The actions of these men demonstrate that they're not born again because it's, it's their works. Uh, Jerome said that God's law must be carried in the heart and not on the body. This is the point. So these, these phylacteries, uh, you might have wondered, okay, well, why did Wesley read for so long this morning? Well, I made him do that. I don't blame him for that. I picked out this text. The texts that you heard Res Wesley read are the texts that are in the phylacteries. So the phylacteries were these little leather boxes that have four little scrolls in them, and on those scrolls are the texts that Wesley read. 
about the law of God, about the Passover, about instructing your children, about the greatest commandment that Jesus just preached. Those things are, are what was contained inside of those boxes and those phylacteries. And so they would have on their forehead and on their hands, uh, close to their heart, they would have these reminders of God's law where he had commanded them to do this. And Jesus is saying, you've made your boxes bigger and you've made the things on your arm bigger so that people get attention of this guy. You know, some people have a little bit of God's law, but this guy is really serious about God's law because he's got a bigger box than everybody else. So he must be more spiritual than everyone else. And yet Jesus is saying, uh, the only reason you're doing that is to be noticed by men. It has nothing to do with your holiness at all. And in fact, uh, the scripture teaches that the, that the law of God should be written on our hearts. That if the law of God is in our hearts, if we love him truly, Jesus remembers, Jesus said, all of the law and the prophets are contained in that. If we, if we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our might, and we love our neighbor as ourselves, we have kept the whole law. We don't have to have it written in a box on our forehead. We have to have it written in our hearts. And again, unfortunately, under the weight of God's holiness and his expectation for you, you are incapable of doing that apart from Christ. You must be born again in, in order to be able to fulfill uh, those great commandments. And so while these men tried to make the boxes bigger, what they weren't making bigger is their actual holiness. What they weren't doing is being born again. They weren't regenerating themselves. That's something that the Holy Spirit has to do. And so the new birth changes our position. Uh, we're adopted into the family of God. We're made his sons and daughters. But it doesn't just change our position. It also changes our affections. It changes our emotions. Uh, the, way, the way Pastor Wesley says is he he's, he's changes your have to into a want to. And, and everybody in here who has been born again understands what, that, what that's like. All of a sudden, your relationship with sin changes. The sin that you used to love, you hate now. And you actually desire righteousness. You actually desire to, to please the Lord. So do we cast a burden on you of, well, you just need to, to live rightly? You need to obey God's law more? Well, no, that's casting a burden onto the shoulders. What the Holy Spirit does is he changes it to where you don't have to, you don't have to ask me to obey God's law. I want to obey God's law. I'm, I'm asking him to help me do it because I know it's good for me. Because I know that all of God's laws are good. I know that, uh, that correction and the, and the guardrails that he has put up for me is going to lead me into a blessed life. And I want that. And I see that now, that his discipline is good for me and, and that I want to pursue that. That can only happen through the new birth. You can't make a person want uh, to obey God's law. But with a new heart, they want to do what's good for them. Everybody's self-interested. The sinner is self-interested. They want to do what's good for them. And the Christian wants to do what's good for them. The difference is the Christian sees things that the non-Christian doesn't see. We see what is truly good, not what is held in front of us deceptively of sin that looks good for, for a season. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it ends in death and destruction. But we see that the Lord actually holds out life in front of us, and we want that. Origen said the only ornaments that, that, that Jesus' disciples were wearing were good works. That's what they had. They, they might not have had the things on their hands or their foreheads, but they had good works. The other thing, too, is just culturally, just to mention with these phylacteries, because there's, there's not a lot of passages. Uh, I believe this is the only New Testament passage that actually uses that word. So while we're here, just to explain that, 
with these boxes. By this time in history, some of these boxes were actually used as like amulets or charms against evil spirits. So they had all some of some of them almost had a pagan usage where it was like a like a good luck charm or like some kind of uh, amulet that you would wear that would keep uh, demons away from you or would protect you. Uh, similar to, uh, for instance, uh, a lot of Catholics will have saints. They'll have a saint that they wear that they pray to to for protection or for something like that. It's a very similar uh, type of experience. And obviously Jesus is condemning that because a leather box with scrolls in it is not going to protect you from the devil. Um, the Holy Spirit possesses you as a believer in Christ, and uh, you are currently occupied. There's no room uh, for any kind of demon possession or anything like that. That's the second snare. The third snare I want you to see here is the snare of seeking salutation. The snare of seeking salutation. Look at verses 6 through 10. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. So there's a snare that men who are leading God's people can fall into of seeking salutations, seeking praise, seeking titles, seeking accolades from other people. Sometimes you see a a pastor's name on TV or something, and it's like it's got all these abbreviations before and after. You know, the, uh, the right reverend Dr. K.S.E. Step, evangelist, you know, or something like that. And it's just like, what does that even mean? Um, but people have a tendency to acquire these uh, titles and recognition for themselves. And, and what, even if you don't know what any of that means, what you're supposed to know is it means that's an important person. That's, that's the whole reason why it's there. And so these men were that way. I want to be called rabbi. I want to sit in the best seat. I want people to recognize me as an important person or somebody who's really smart when it comes to the law. I want to be recognized as that kind of person. So how do they do this? They strategize their own status. Verse 6, again there. They love the place of honor at banquets in the chief seats in the synagogues. What does that mean? Well, whenever you're having a meal, whoever sits the closest to the host of the meal is the most respected position. So what do you do? You show up early and you get the good seats so that when everybody else comes in, all of the people on the street and the kids and you know everybody else that's not a big deal, they sit at the end of the table. But when everybody walks in and they see you sitting next to the host, they recognize this guy's a big deal. Now, it's not wrong. Somebody needs to sit in that seat. If you remember at the Last Supper, John was the one that it says was leaning on Jesus' bosom. He was the one that was actually sitting there. He says that he was the disciple that Jesus loved. And Jesus didn't condemn him for doing that. So that shows that they had a very special friendship even among the disciples that John was the one that got to sit next to Jesus um, during that time, which is an incredible thought to have of what would it be like to sit in that place. Um, And yet... These men did it strategically. They weren't invited, again, just like they weren't invited into the seat of Moses, they weren't invited to sit at the good place, but they showed up and made sure that that's where they were sitting so that everybody else saw that they were a big deal. They strategized their own status. Also, in the synagogues, the chief seats, you have uh, women and kids sit in the back. People sit up towards the front, depending on how important they are in society. And then you have the chief seats, which are basically kind of like these guys here. 
you had seats that actually faced the congregation, and those are the chief seats. So you would have a guy in the seat of Moses teaching, but then the most respected ones would be the ones sitting in the chief seats. This actually uh, continued on later. Uh, one of the things you may not have noticed is several years ago, there were actually two chairs that were sit facing next to the Lord's table here. And the reason why is historically some Baptists actually would have their elders sit in those seats to watch people during the preaching to see who was under conviction. Well, we haven't done that this morning, but if you, if you feel a little uncomfortable or confronted at times with the preaching, a hundred years ago it would have been even more uncomfortable because not only would someone be watching you the whole time, but then they would be basically calling you out during communion or something else uh, or coming to you and asking you, if you needed prayer because you were obviously under conviction. And so uh, we're not going to do that this morning, uh, but that's essentially why those chairs function. Some of those things have continued on through tradition, but a lot of people don't understand uh, why they're actually there. And so these men, again, get to the synagogue. They want to get there early. They want to get in the chief seat. So when everybody walks in, this guy's a big deal. He's, He's the one sitting next to the seat of Moses in the synagogue. And so uh, a man who seeks public recognition as a, as a minister or invites himself into pulpits is practicing the error that Jesus teaches here. So if a, if a man just showed up on Sunday morning and said, you know, I'm a really, I, I want to let y'all know I'm a really great preacher. I'm a really big deal, and, I, and I've come here because I want to preach this morning. That's red flags. Jesus is saying that's the guy that you don't want in the pulpit, that thinks that he belongs there, that thinks that, He's doing everybody a favor by getting up there and preaching, and that he's inviting himself into that place. That that's the, a mark of a guy that you don't want to be doing uh, that kind of ministry, because that's what these guys were doing. Is oh, I'm going to put myself out there first and let everybody know how awesome I am, so that they can they can invite me and and give me that kind of praise. It's a dangerous thing to stand behind uh, God's desk and act like God. It's a very dangerous thing. He's a jealous God, and uh, pastors would do well not to provoke his jealousy by trying to build their own kingdoms or by trying to b- bring glory to themselves uh, in their preaching. So God uses a plurality and parity of elders in the local church to help men with this temptation. But God has not left us alone, even though it can be a temptation for men to try to kind of exalt themselves or put themselves in a position. One of the reasons why the Bible does prescribes having a plurality and a parity of elders. In other words, the church is governed by multiple elders that are actually equal in their office. Uh, one of the reasons why the Bible prescribes that is to resist them, this temptation. So your, your elders in this church are church members who are striving to be obedient to God with their gifts, as all church members do. That's who we are. So b- before I, I'm, a, I'm a pastor, that, that's a a title that some people would use to recognize me, but at the end of the day, I'm a church member, just like every church member. I, I, I can, I'm still under the discipline of the church. I'm not above church discipline. Uh, I had to go through the same requirements to enter membership as everybody else does in order to be a member. I agree to the same church covenant that every church member agrees to. So I, I'm not better than any other church members because I'm standing here and somebody's sitting out there. It's a difference of position and serving. I'm trying to be obedient to what God has called me to do, and the person who cleaned the bathroom for you this week is trying to be obedient to the, what God's called them to do. And the person that vacuumed the sanctuary that nobody sees, that nobody knows about, those people are all trying to be obedient to you. And we needed all of those things this morning. They're all important. And so we are different parts of the same body. 
But having that plurality and that parity of elders means also uh, our church does not have an archbishop. So there is not one of the elders that is above the other elders. Uh, the, we believe that there's two offices in the church. There's pastors and deacons. Those are the two offices that are there. And so the three of us, as your elders, we work together uh, in the leadership of the church, praying together, trying to balance each other out, trying to get out of the way of the Holy Spirit to let him lead the church. And so there's not one elder that's driving the bus here. Uh, we try to let the Holy Spirit drive the bus and just not, not be in his way and try to be prayerful and obedient in, in the process of doing that. And so uh, one of the ways that God removes that temptation, when you see a guy in a church who is building his own kingdom, who is exalting himself, it's almost never a situation where he has equals. It's usually he, he is always uh, in leadership over the other elders. And th- then this temptation begins to step in where all of a sudden he starts getting the good seats and getting the attention and getting these kind of things. And he loses his accountability and he ends up destroying his ministry as a result of that. So our archbishop here at Barberville Baptist Church is the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Uh, he, he is the, the one that is over everybody here. So they strategized their own status. They tried to do this. And then they sanctified their own station. So not only did they get into this position, but then they tried to make it appear really holy uh, by using these titles of rabbi or father or leader or whatever whatever kind of titles that they used. Now, Jesus is not banning earned titles, but appointed ones. So what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is, is, you're allowed to call your biological father, father. Jesus is not saying you can't call him father. Why? Because he earned the right to be called father by you because you would not exist if it was not for your earthly father. So he earned that. So there's nothing sinful about that. Now, if another man commands that you call him father and has not earned that from you, then Jesus is saying uh, that's sin. It's sin for him to to call call you that. In other words, uh, so for instance... This is, a, this is a pet peeve um, that I have. A man who is not currently leading a church is not a pastor at that time. So pastor is not a title that you're given that you just keep for the rest of your life. I've seen a lot of guys that are retired or they're not currently in ministry and people refer to them as pastor. Uh, the pastor is an office in a local church that a local church uh, uh, sets that man apart for that office. In other words, when you leave that local church, you are no longer a pastor because you do not have a congregation that you're shepherding. And so a lot of men maintain that title of pastor, and I don't think they're all being sinful in doing it. I think a lot of it's just cultural, but I want to point out here that the reason why I have the title of pastor is not because I just walked in here one day and said, I'm a pastor, y'all should make me a pastor. That's not what happened. As I said, there was a process whereby the church set me apart within the church as a member of the church and said, we recognize you as a, as a shepherd of this flock according to Scripture. And so we call you pastor because you are our pastor. You're not a general pastor, but there's a specific flock. I don't have a right to tell another church down the street how they need to do everything in their church, how they need to handle everything. I'm not their pastor. I have not been uh, selected. The guy on the radio that you listen to is not your pastor. Or the guy that you watch on TV or online, he's not your pastor. If, if, if you have a pastor that doesn't know you, then you don't have a pastor. How could someone shepherd you that you don't know? Um, that, that's not a possibility. That's why we set it as a church. If by God's grace our church grew to where this room was full on Sunday morning, we plant more churches. 
we're, we're, we're not, uh, if I don't know everybody on the membership list, then I'm not a pastor anymore. I'm just an administrator or a leader. And so uh, these men were sanctifying their own station with these titles, but the reality is, is you should call someone a pastor because a local church has set them apart as a pastor, not because they have claimed the title of pastor. Um, the word actually has to mean something in other words. Uh, for instance, why do we not call our pastors father as they do in the Catholic Church? Well, in the Catholic Church, uh, the priest actually acts in the... He's, he's an altar Christus. He's another Christ. That's how they refer to him. And so they call him father out of respect for the fact that they believe that, he, that that priest is able to forgive their sins. Of course, we deny all of that because Scripture does. I, there's, only, there's only six people in this room that can call me father, and that's my children. They're allowed to do that, and I have earned that because I was there when they were born, and they would not exist if it were not for me. So I have earned that title from them. But I would never want to force someone in here to call me something, even pastor. None of, you, none of you in here have to call me anything other than Ben. That's my name. If you choose to do that, that's fine. But that should be a title that I have earned, not one that I demand from anyone. And that's, that's the error here. Jesus is not saying you can't call anybody rabbi. Remember, people called him rabbi all the time. What he's saying is, is don't call somebody rabbi unless they're a rabbi. Just because they say they're a rabbi doesn't mean they're really a rabbi. Just because a man says that he's a pastor doesn't mean that he's really a pastor. So those are three snares. The snare of seeking submission, trying to put others underneath you. The snare of seeking superiority, trying to put yourself above other people. The snare of seeking salutation, of trying to get praises from men. These are three traps that uh, men that are leading God's people can fall into. And so then the last thing I want you to see here is the surrender of seeking servanthood. So I said the title of the message is three, three Snares and a Solution for Stumbling Shepherds. So if you're a stumbling shepherd this morning, uh, I, I know there's at least one in the room right now. It's me. Um, what is the solution? What's the solution to these snares that we have? It's the surrender of seeking servanthood. Look at verses 11 and 12. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be ex- exalted. And so... Uh, how does a man avoid these snares? By putting himself lower, by humbling himself, by serving others more. And the solution to trying to submit un- others underneath authority is you submitting yourself under those people. The solution to seeking superiority over other people is to see everyone as more superior than you are. The solution to looking for praises from other people is to focus more on praising other people than receiving praise from other people. So in other words, the, the, the greatest in the kingdom is the one who is serving everyone. And so the greatest servants of the church should be the pastors of the church. They should be leading in, in their service. So I, I just want to point something out. Why, why all of this talk about serving lately? If you've been here the past few weeks, you've noticed that there's this consistent theme within the messages of why do we keep talking about serving and being more committed to the church and doing more and volunteering and doing all these kind of things? Well, if you, under, if you misunderstand that, that can feel like what the Pharisees are trying to do, of putting this burden on you of, well, you just need to do more. You need to be more. You need to give more. You need to attend more and putting that weight on you, right? And that's not the goal here. That's not the goal in the text. And that's not the goal of your pastors is not to lay more burdens on people. So why do we keep talking about it? Well, for one, it's in the text. Jesus is pointing it out. 
So we have to point out what he points out. And as we see, the church goes through different seasons. And as we preach through books of the Bible, we never know what those are going to be, but the Lord does. And so somehow in his providence, he ends up applying whatever we're going through to the season of the church. The reason why you're pastors and the reason why God wants you to serve more in the church is because serving is good for you. It's good for the Christian. So it's, it's, not, even, it's, it's not even about uh, other people sometimes. It's good for your spiritual walk. It is hard for you to be a healthy follower of Jesus and not use your gifts. Um, it's, it's not healthy for you to do that. Um, serving is good for the church. Uh, a church is built on uh, living stones. Right? As Paul says, we are living stones that are being built up into this church. Well, how do you know it's alive? Because it's doing something. <laughs> that's, part of, that's part of how you know that it's alive. And so uh, serving is good for you as an individual, but it's good. it builds the whole church up. God has given each member of our church gifts that other members don't have. Why? Because there's a piece of the puzzle that that person fits that, that nobody else can do. And it's hard sometimes to find out where that piece is, but... It's good for that person to know where their place is, to, to know what God has made them to do. And it's good for the whole body because it strengthens everybody when that person is serving uh, in the way that they want to. And serving is also uh, good for pastors. So sometimes when we preach things, we're preaching to ourselves. I've done a lot of that today. So you may hear this and, and think, well, I'm not a pastor. None of this really applies to me. Well, thank you for allowing me to preach to myself uh, for this period of time. And if it doesn't apply to you, it certainly has applied to me this week as the Lord has dealt with me um, seriously about it. But that's where, that's where all the talk for serving is coming from. We're not beating anybody over the head. We're not demanding that you go. If you're a real Christian, you'll go and sign up to be in the parade. I understand that that might not, that might not be your thing. There's different people that have different gifts. But what, one of the options is not, well, I'm just not going to do anything. That, that, that's not good for you. It's not good for the church. Um, and so uh, we want everybody to be using those gifts uh, and things that they're doing. So in conclusion, I just want to read a reminder to you from Scripture in Matthew 11. I'm going to read verses uh, 25 through 30. This is a familiar passage. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Father, I thank you this morning for that precious promise, that your burden is easy and that your yoke is light. And Lord, we have many burdens today. All we have to do is turn on the news, go out on the street, talk with family members or friends, there's so many, so many heavy things in this life, Lord. The curse of sin is more than we can bear. The brokenness, the destruction, the wickedness, uh, the, the anger, the frustration, the fear. It's more than we can handle, Lord. And so, Father, this morning we bring those burdens to you. We're taking you up on your promise 
that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And so, Lord, we don't want to serve out of compulsion, but out of joy. We don't want to obey you because of the demands of the law. We want to obey you because we are free from the law, because you have, you have lifted that burden for us and that we are free to obey it now instead of being crushed by it. And Lord, we just ask that whatever our burdens are now, as we prepare to come to your table, Lord, that we would lay those down at your feet because you are strong enough to carry all of them. There's nothing we've gone through in the past week or in this season of life that is too great for you, that is too hard for you. And so, Lord, we cast our cares on you because you care for us. We ask that as we leave today, Lord, that we would leave as an unburdened people, that we would have freedom in you, that we would have joy in you, that we would know that because of Christ our sins are forgiven, that we have a hope of heaven, that all of these things are light and momentary afflictions, and that, Lord, all of all of the things that we see and we stress about and we deal with are going to pass away one day, and none of it's going to matter. And so, Lord, help us to come to you and to rest today. In Christ's name, amen.